Well, if you've closed your Bibles, uh, open them again, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Looking this evening at 1st King of Israel. You might recall back in chapter 8, as Samuel got on in years, and they realized his sons were not fit to take over in his place, the people of Israel rejected the authority of God, his place as their king. They saw what the nations had, and they said that they wanted a king like all the nations around them. The theme of chapter 8, at least as I see it, is you've got to be careful what you pray for. You just might get it. God may just give you exactly what you asked for and actually not necessarily a good thing. The voice of the people is not the voice of God, and the people demanded a king like the nations and rejected God's authority. They rejected Him as their Savior and as their Sovereign. And yet, nonetheless, God said every man to his city. And so we come to chapter 9 this morning, and if I can summarize chapter 9 and 10 together, I might simply say this. Though worldly men may prove to be incompetent or ignorant, incredulous, our mighty, wise, and faithful God is able to use such men for His purposes. Though worldly men may prove to be incompetent, ignorant, incredulous, our mighty, wise, and faithful God is able to use such men for His purposes in this world. And so we're introduced to really, you might say, the second main character in the whole book. We've met Samuel, that's who the book's named after. There's really three main characters, if you want to use the word character. Obviously, I'm not saying this isn't historical. This is absolutely historical, but sometimes I say the word character because this is nonetheless a story. The second main character in the book of Samuel is this man, Saul. And in the first two verses, we're introduced to the man, Saul. And there's a few qualities that are listed about him. We get a bit of a genealogy, and we get qualities about this man. What we learn right away is that he's wealthy. He's from a notable family, a powerful family, a wealthy family in the tribe of Benjamin. So he's wealthy. He's handsome and young, more than any other, and he's tall, extremely tall. Actually, he's the only Jewish person, apparently, in all the Old Testament that's told to us to be quite tall. Normally, height, when it's mentioned, is about someone that's outside the people of Israel. Here we're told that Saul is extremely tall. It's repeated later as well. So Saul is given these qualities. And I think why he's described this way right from the beginning is because we're to understand these are the sorts of qualities that the nations value in a king. 
God's going to give them a king like the nations. And he's giving them this man who's wealthy, from a noble family, who's handsome, maybe a charismatic sort of figure, and he is tall, maybe one that might be a contender on the field of battle. After all, they want a military king, so they want someone who's young and someone who is large. And yet, though we see these superficial qualities mentioned immediately, what we see in the story to come is that he is not exactly one who is well qualified to be a king. So in the first, I'll run through just quickly. I'm not going to go verse by verse, but we're going to look quickly at Saul's qualities and his quest. We've seen these superficial things, but there's three other qualities that we're going to see as the quest of him searching for his dad's donkeys plays out. He is a king after man's own heart, not after God's own heart. And the first thing I think we see, and maybe this is a bit strong to put it so bluntly, but I think that we see that Saul is, is not competent. On the contrary, he's incompetent. His dad's donkeys are lost, and he is tasked to go and find them. And through the entire two chapters, he is utterly unsuccessful. The donkeys go back, but not because of anything that he's done. He is not able to find them whatsoever. And maybe you might think, well, what's, is that really his fault? Uh, well, it's hard to say for sure, but what I will say is this. Every other key leader in Jewish history that is esteemed, say like the patriarchs, or like Moses, or like their second king, is known for his skill in animal husbandry, is known for his skill as a shepherd. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and so on, they are gifted shepherds. They are gifted at caring for their flocks. And those skills are seen to be qualifications or at least things that carry over into the way they lead God's people. David uh, describes his own work as a shepherd later on, and um, he's presented as a very devoted shepherd. And when one of his sheep is lost and is in the mouth of a lion, apparently he goes and grabs it by the beard and kills it. Can you imagine that? He kills a lion. He kills a bear. This is David. And, and we're not told this for no reason. We're told this because David's shepherding skill and expertise is preparing him to be Israel's second king. Now, I don't want to talk too much about David, but I think it's important to mention that to show that this is not arbitrary information we're getting here about Saul. I'm not trying to be hard on him, but I do think that his inability to manage donkeys does not bode well for his ability to manage a kingdom. We know in the New Testament, as it speaks about qualifications for elders and deacons, you manage your own household well, and you're able to care for God's church. And if you can't, well, it's not qualified Saul is not able to manage his father's donkeys well, and yet he is the one who is lined up to be 
the king of Israel. So he's not shown to be very competent in how he exercises that task. And as he goes looking for his donkeys with his servant, we come to learn something else about Saul. Secondly, he's ignorant. And again, not trying to be harsh on the man, but it's astounding that Saul somehow is not aware of who Samuel is. Samuel is the judge of Israel. He's had a ministry as a prophet and a priest for decades. He's the key spiritual leader in all the land. He's the one through whom the word of the Lord is most dominantly coming to God's people. And Saul, who lives not far off, doesn't even know who he is. So what does that say about his ability to lead God's people according to God's word? He doesn't know who Samuel is. There's ignorance there. His slave knows who Samuel is. His slave is the one that has to say to him, well, there's a seer here. Maybe we should go ask him about our donkeys. So Saul agrees and doesn't have a good um, picture of a man who will be able to lead according to God's word for the kingdom of Israel. So he's shown to be incompetent and ignorant. And later on in the passage, after everything that goes on, when we get to chapter 10, after Samuel tells him he's going to be the king, after Samuel honors him and anoints him and tells him of all these signs that are going to take place to confirm he's the guy, he's the one that God has appointed. And after God fills him with the Spirit... And after he's chosen by Lot publicly, all of these things happen to confirm he's going to be the king. What does he do? He tells no one, and he goes and he hides in the baggage. He hides himself from the responsibility. He's incredulous. He doesn't believe. He does not, in faith, take up the responsibility given to him. Samuel says, God will be with you. Spirit of God comes upon him, rushes upon him in power. The word of God is confirmed through many signs, miraculously. He does not believe. He wants to run from it. He wants to hide from it. He seems to think he can hide from God, just like Jonah thought he could run from God. We heard about Jonah some months back. He seems to think he can hide from God, which again implies a low view of the Lord. So he's incredulous. Not a strong picture of Samuel. Sorry, of Saul. And so we see this man, Saul, being thrust into the light. And he's the sort of man, superficially, that the nations might want for a king. He's a king after man's own heart. But he's not the sort of king that the people really need. God gives them what they ask for. He doesn't give them a man of character, a man of conviction, a man of competency. So we might be wondering what's going on. We've talked about Saul 
over the course of those two chapters. Now we're going to talk about the Lord. The Lord's doing here. The Lord's qualities and quest, if you will. We've seen Saul's quality and his quest to find the donkeys. We'll talk now about the Lord's qualities and Lord's quest. The Lord has His own purpose, His own mission, and a character unlike that of Saul. You see, Saul couldn't find his father's donkeys, but the Lord finds a donkey of a man. He's a man lost in the baggage. The donkeys were lost, now Saul's lost in the baggage. Who finds Saul? The Lord. The Lord finds Saul. His father was wondering where he went. The Lord sends him back, filled with the Holy Spirit, smelling like oil. The Lord chooses him by lot. So to put it mildly, the Lord is competent, more than competent. The Lord is in control. Even though we see the, this picture of Saul, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to put it too strongly, it's it's not like I think he's the worst person in the world or something. It's not a great picture to start of, of who Saul is and what sort of king he will be. But nonetheless, all the way through these two chapters, we see the Lord working. We see the Lord orchestrating his plan. What seemed to be ordinary events, a man looking for his dad's donkeys, stumbling upon the prophet... These ordinary events, the Lord is working through them to raise up a king for his people. He's in control. He's not ignorant. He's omniscient. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly where Saul is. He knows exactly how all these events would unfold. He predicts the future. He knows the desires of the heart. And he orchestrates it all according to his will. Now, there are some things I haven't mentioned that a keen student of Scripture may have noticed that are even more, uh, you might even say disturbing, about these two chapters here. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, not Judah. You see, Genesis 49 tells us the scepter won't depart from Judah. In other words, Judah's the tribe that's going to get a king. Judah's the tribe that's going to have a king whose reign is forever. Who never loses the throne. Whose dynasty continues on. Saul is not from Judah. Saul is from Benjamin. So you think, well, what's going on? Benjamin? Why would God choose someone from Benjamin? He told us the king's coming from Judah. And what's more, Benjamin, in recent history to this time, was nearly annihilated in civil war. Anybody that knows the book of Judges well can tell you exactly what happens at the end. Probably some of the most disturbing chapters in all of Scripture. 
you know, I drive to work and I see all these different road signs and become really, um, you, you remember every road you drive past, every sign. When you drive the same drive every day, you remember every single detail along the way, right? Well, there's Ballins Road and Westover Road and all these different roads I drive past. And then there's a sign that says Sodom Road. You think, who would ever name a road that? Jumps in your mind and you think, what a terrible name for a road. What we don't do is we don't hear the word Gibeah and think, oh boy, Gibeah, are you kidding me? Well, I don't think that would have been true of the people who first read the book of Samuel. And that wouldn't have been true of the nation of Israel when they received their king. Gibeah is the Sodom of Israel. Gibeah is what Sodom would have been if the Lord didn't pour out fire and brimstone from heaven. Basically, without getting into the gory details of it, you can read Judges 19 through 21 in your own time and you can see exactly what I'm talking about. But basically, instead of pouring out fire and brimstone and revealing his wrath from heaven, as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord revealed his wrath from heaven in handing over Gibeah to, to its own desires, its own perverse and violent wickedness. He did not stop them as he did in Sodom. He did not stop them from committing the deeds, the abominable deeds that they envisioned. And so heinous were the crimes of Gibeah that all other 11 tribes, Gibeah is part of Benjamin, all other 11 tribes, when they heard about it, they said, we need to wipe these people out. We need to wipe Benjamin off the map. And they all went to war against Benjamin at the end of the book of Judges, which of course comes right before Samuel, right before this period in history. And so barely any people even survived from Benjamin, let alone Gibeah. And here we come along, and the people of Israel are demanding a king, and who does God choose for them? A man from Gibeah. A man from the Sodom of Israel. A man from the most depraved town imaginable. No wonder he didn't know who Samuel was. No wonder when called upon by Samuel, he says to him, where is it now? Verse 21, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? He understands. He understands he's from Gibeah. It's no surprise to him. And yet, he's being asked to come and be honored by Saul and eventually anointed and appointed to be king. Profound. So you might wonder, what in the world is going on? Why, why Saul? Why this man? Why would God appoint him? Because it's very clear, this is who God has chosen. 
this is who God has poured His Spirit upon. This is who was chosen by Lot. This is whom the prophet spoke of according to the word of the Lord. Well, Hosea chapter 13 interprets this period of history for Israel simply by saying that God gave them a king in his anger. He gave them a king in his wrath. This is an expression of God's wrath toward Israel, just as he handed Gibeah over to her desires and did not pour out fire and brimstone, so also he's handing Israel over to her desires, giving them the king they asked for, a king like the nations. He appoints Saul to be that king. And yet, here's what's amazing. God is actually going to use Saul for the benefit of his people. You know, the word save is used multiple times. He's going to use Saul to save his people from the Philistines. Saul is filled with the Spirit. And they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now you understand why it's so astounding. Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, I'm not going to get into all the ins and outs of a doctrine called pneumatology, but I will say this. I don't think Saul is saved, and that becomes clearer later on, I think, in the, in the story of 1 Samuel. I don't think Saul is saved. My understanding would be that Saul, like other prophets and priests and kings and judges, is filled with the Spirit, which in the Old Testament was more reserved for those who bear such offices. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, all God's people, Pentecost onward, are filled with the Spirit. We're all a kingdom of priests. We're all, in a sense, given a, a prophetic mission to proclaim the gospel to all nations. And so there's a change there, covenantally. It's different from the Old Covenant. And what's true of us in the New Covenant, all of God's people are both regenerated, changed on the inside by the Holy Spirit, born again, and filled with the Spirit. In the Old Covenant, I would understand Old Testament saints to have been regenerated. I think that's theologically necessary for someone to come to faith and repentance. But I would think there's a distinction there between regeneration and being filled with the Spirit. Now that's a bit complicated, and it's a complicated thing to work out theologically, but that's how I'd make sense of this. Balaam is another example of one who's pretty plainly not saved, but filled with the Spirit. So that's the sort of category I would put Saul in. But he's used by God nonetheless. So what do we say about all this. What is our response then to the scriptures, these chapters? Well, first of all, we can stand in awe of our God. We can see that God is he's doing multiple things at the same time. He's judging and he's saving. He's orchestrating all things according to the counsel of his will. You know, sometimes um, I'll come home from work and 
my wife is baking bread and listening to a podcast and coordinating merchandise sales on her phone and cleaning the kitchen table and watching the children all at the same time. Maybe some of you men have had similar experiences. You think, how in the world does she do all five things at the same time? Well, the Lord does more than five things at the same time, doesn't he? The Lord is doing innumerable different things at the exact same time, according to the counsel of his will. He's orchestrating everything. We say, you can kill two birds with one stone. Well, to extend the metaphor, you can kill innumerable birds with one stone if you're the Lord. The Lord is both judging and redeeming through appointing Saul as king. It's his sovereign work. And he is unraveling a greater story, a greater plan for the fullness of time, his plan of redemption, where he, whereby he will save his people from their sins. And when you're in the moment, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. What is going on? Why, why Benjamin? Why this guy? If you're a righteous Israelite and you see this man from Gibeah being chosen as your king, a man who doesn't show himself to be very competent. He shows himself rather to be incompetent and ignorant and incredulous. You might be tempted then to reject him. But if you rejected him, you'd be rejecting the purpose of God. The appointed of God, the anointed one, King Saul. And what we come to at the end of our passage then is there's two different groups, two different responses to this king, Saul. And who are the men of valor? The men of valor go back with Saul in support of him. It says at the end of chapter 10, where is it now? Verse 26. With him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. You want to be a man of valor. Trust the purpose of the Lord. Trust the revealed will of God. Submit to it. Support it. Embrace it. Take up the task given to you. Take up the responsibility given to you. Don't hide yourself like Saul did. Trust God. Don't be disbelieving, but believe. Be courageous and respond in faith to what the Lord has revealed, even if you don't understand the events He unfolds in history. You know, we, we're bad interpreters of history. But what is clear is what the Lord has revealed in His Word. We can interpret some of these events in light of other scriptures and what's told of us of what's going on here, but when it comes to our own lives, we're bad interpreters of history. We need to rely and trust God's revealed word and be men of valor and be courageous in what we know to be true, even if it doesn't make sense to us, even if the circumstances around us seem quite odd and quite strange. So we stand in awe of our God. We submit to His revealed will in humility. A second way we should respond to this is we need to be careful then not understanding 
the Lord's purposes and the Lord's actions, to not justify our own actions because there is a positive outcome. Sometimes we sin in the means to an end. And just because the end is good doesn't mean the way we got there was right. Doesn't mean that just because you have a happy marriage that everything you did in entering into that marriage was right. Or just because you have a beautiful child doesn't mean that though that child's a gift from God that perhaps there were sinful circumstances you still need forgiveness from. Or just because you got a job doesn't mean it was right to lie on your resume even if it allows you to provide for your family. You see, the, the ends don't justify the means. Sometimes God does a good thing for his people. He's going to rescue them from the Philistines through Saul. It doesn't mean it was right for the Israel to ask for a king like the nations. So we must be careful not to justify our actions wrongly so. And lastly, let's take courage in whatever the Lord calls us to do. Consider this man, Saul. God took an incompetent, ignorant, incredulous man from the most depraved town in all of Israel, and he honored him as king. He made him the one through whom he would save his people from her surrounding enemies, the Philistines. He filled Saul with the Spirit for ministry. And he promised to be with him in his task. And perhaps you know people who are like Saul or who are like the men of Gibeah. Perhaps you know people that are caught up in in violence or in perverse desire. Don't think the Lord couldn't choose them or call them, or change them, or cleanse them, and fill them with His Spirit, and use them for His kingdom purposes, He may well, as He did Saul. And you know, there's a man in the New Testament with the same name. A murderer. A violent man. An insolent opponent, whom the Lord called, and cleansed, and justified, and filled with the Spirit, and sent out on kingdom work, the work of ministry, and who was probably the most, you might say in worldly terms, successful propagator of the Christian gospel ever. Like no one after him. Who after him preached the gospel to the nations the way he did? Perhaps with technology now, you might say there's someone more. But the ministry of the apostle Paul, who once was Saul, was something by the grace of God that is unmatched in Christian history. That's the sort of grace that the Lord can extend. And Saul realized what a wretch he was. He realized he was the chief of sinners. And yet God saved him. And rather than shying away from his calling, he took courage. And with zeal, he proclaimed the gospel of grace. Don't shrink back from the task the Lord has appointed to you. Even if it's looking after donkeys. Even if it's 
something you might consider ordinary. May we with valor, with courage, with conviction and character, do our jobs, do the tasks and ministries and services that the Lord has appointed to us, the responsibilities and duties given to us with conviction, with faith, knowing that the Lord is with us, knowing that the Lord has filled us, Christians, every one of us, with His Spirit to do the work of ministry. And you know, Jesus Christ, they scoffed at Him, they mocked Him. Even in some ways similar to Saul, they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? They said, isn't this Joseph's son? His kingdom was opposed and mocked on the cross as he was killed. And yet, simultaneously, God both condemned sin and saved his people. That is our God. May we stand in awe of him. May we come to him for grace. May we trust him to help us, to forgive us, to make us new, to change us. And may we seek his kingdom with zeal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Oh God, help us to serve You as You deserve to be served. With passion, with excellence, with conviction. May we adorn the Gospel of Jesus Christ with spiritual fruit, imitating our Savior. Do you bless your word to us this evening? Help us, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. We're going to